0: Well, this morning we're in Luke, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 20. Uh, This is following on the heels of Jesus' authority being challenged by the ruling Jews in our sermon from last week in the early part of Luke chapter 20. This parable this morning is recorded at length in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a significant parable. Parable, because at the end of it, it has one of the great names of Jesus. We considered calling this church not Covenant, thank you, Bob, but uh, but Cornerstone, uh, Cornerstone Bible Church, because this this Cornerstone analogy and name of the Lord is a very powerful uh, name, and it has a lot of significance. It was very significant to the early church. They spoke of it often and we'll see it here this morning. So please stand uh, to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning from Luke chapter 20 verses 9 through 20. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him. And sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, and they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. Verse 12. And he sent yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we have before us this morning uh, another parable, uh, a story or a setting in this particular place. It's it's used that everyone can understand the idea of someone owning land and, and going away and leaving it in the care of others and then sending his stewards to check in on what is happening and what is going on. And then the people that are there being ruthless and wicked and trying to manipulate the absent owner Uh, and then the sun coming in, and so this is all a setting, and it is used often by Jesus in the parables, the idea of going away and then coming back, of the passing of time, of ownership, of authority, and specifically in this parable, the rejecting of authority, and rebellion and unbelief against authority, and so it is important as we look at this that we skip forward just a little bit. I'm sorry, I did not read. I should have read through 20, but we can look at it now. I'll read it now. Verses 19 and 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he had said, so as to deliver him to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So that's very important that we see that the scribes and chief priests saw and understood that Jesus was telling this parable against them. They recognized it. They they, as this thing was unfolding, like, oh, this is interesting. This is no, this is not interesting. Wait, this guy, he's talking about me directly. And then their hearts harden. Instead of hearing Jesus and opening their hearts. They harden their hearts against him, and by the time this is over with, they are plotting and scheming for how they can physically destroy him, how they can turn him over to the magistrates and have him crucified, which is what they will continue on with over the next few days. Even though there's much teaching in these chapters, in reality, it occurs over a very short period of time. And so the first servants here, there's three servants mentioned in this parable, and they come in in verses 10 through 12, and when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he comes, and these, these servants come to check on and bring back some to the master, and each time that one is sent, they are abused, mistreated, and kicked out, and what this is meant to represent is the prophets of old sent to Israel on behalf of God to speak God's word. Over and over in the Old Testament, we have the sending of prophets, those that are sent by the Lord with a thus saith the Lord word to clearly speak to the people of Israel. And if, if you haven't spent much time in the Old Testament, I encourage you this year to read more of it. These things will make much more Sense to you and have much more weight and clarity when you see the way in which the Old Testament prophets pleaded with the people of Israel. And when you read about the depth of rebellion of the people of Israel and how hard their hearts were and how they kept doubling down and tripling down on their ungodliness and how long-suffering and patient that the Lord was with them. But some of these examples are, one of this, Jeremiah, I think the, the chief of these, he was, he's called often the weeping prophet. Because he would speak to the people and they would not listen and they would abuse him in one way or another down to where it looks like they're gonna kill him. At the, the lowest possible point, he's still telling the people that the, the land is gonna be overthrown for their sinfulness and they throw him in this um, open cistern. But it hasn't rained for a long time and so all it is is a giant mud pit and he sinks up to his chest in this mud and he can't get out and he thinks he's gonna die in this, in this mud pit. And it's just an awful situation, but they do everything possible to mistreat Jeremiah for doing nothing other than speaking to them the word of the Lord. Jesus himself talks about one of these abused uh, servants, if you will, in Matthew chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-five, and declaring woes or, or warnings over these Pharisees and their, these religious leaders of the Jews. He reminds them of Zechariah, whose story is told in 2 Chronicles 24, where he comes preaching to them their wickedness and calling them back from their wickedness. And King Joash instead takes him to the temple court and stones him to death there in the temple court. And Jesus remembers this and brings it to their minds and says, Why are you doing these things? Why do you continually buck against those that bring to you the word of the Lord? In Hebrews chapter 11, the latter part of Hebrews chapter 11, in a a chapter that accounts for us people by name and then many people not by name that were faithful in their service to the Lord, faithful to proclaim the word of God to others. And how were they treated? In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 40, it says this, Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, through though condemned, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so the idea here is is exactly what is happening in this parable, that they were faithful in seeking after the Lord, faithful in proclaiming the things of God in this life, and they received nothing good. They were run out, they were persecuted, they were mistreated, they were given nothing of goodness in this world, and their hope was set upon life eternal, a city of God, a city yet to come that they did not receive in this life, but they did receive by faith through Jesus Christ in the next life. And so when we come to the end of this parable with these various servants of this master being sent to get an account of what is going on and one at a time them being mistreated and, and cast out and beaten and all that is happening here, the master or the father says, he considers in verse, excuse me, there, let's see, in verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. So is this what happens? Perhaps we'll respect the son. That makes sense. He's the one with the most authority other than me. But instead, they don't. They kill him, and they plot against him. Verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They have no respect, no love for the master, no love for the owner of this property, and they hate his son, thinking that they can take from him and make it their own. And so in the second part of verse 15, it says, they they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And so it talks about punishment for those that eventually, after the son is killed, the father is going to come in in complete judgment and take away from them what was theirs and give it to another. And so as long as those that are listening to this parable think that this parable is about someone else, it's a great parable. This is similar to what happens with David and the prophet Nathan, when David has done something terrible in his adultery and his murder, and Nathan comes in with a story that illustrates how bad this is, and he says, oh, this is terrible. You know, this, whoever this person is should be run out of town. And then Nathan points the finger at him and says, this is you that I'm talking about. And the similar thing happens here, because what they say in verse, the second part of verse 16, and when they heard this, they said, surely not. Like, this is terrible. Who, who, who would do such a thing? Who would not, who would rebel against such authority? Who would be so constant in their rebellion against good authority? And who would kill a son? Who would do all these things? And they are offended because they don't yet realize it's about them. But Jesus directs it to them in the most significant way that he can. Verse 17 is powerful. It says he looks directly at them. They say, surely not. Surely this is this is not about us. This can't be us. This is somebody else. Whoever this is should be condemned. And he looks straight at them and says, this parable is about you. You are the ones that have your heritage is what has uh, cast aside the prophets and you are soon to kill the son. And they are angered by this. His intense, resolute look. The Greek here speaks directly to it being an intense and unwavering look. It is a very personal application. The story is not about someone else. It's about you. And so often when we read the Bible, we can fall into this same category of saying, well, man, this is, if only this person could hear this, or only if this group of people would listen to this, they really need to hear this. And if so often when you read the Bible, it's always about someone else and not about you, you need to look more carefully and pray more before you read the scriptures because we must look to our own sinfulness before we ever look to the sinfulness of others. And so Jesus, in applying this parable in this concept of the waywardness and sinfulness of previous generations, all the way down to the very generation that is standing before him, he quotes again from Psalm 118. So Jesus quoted from Psalm 118 just a a few weeks ago when we were reading uh, and looking at the triumphal entry, which in the time frame of what we're reading here was just uh, a few days prior. He quoted from verse 26 in Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus quotes from uh, verses 22 through 23 in Psalm 18, which says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone which was rejected by the builders, has become the cornerstone. So we're going to really camp out here and look at what Jesus is saying. First, the stone that the builders have rejected. We need to see first that Jesus was rejected by who? The idea of a stone and a stone being rejected is that we're going to carve out a stone from the quarry and use it for this purpose. And a cornerstone is a very important load-bearing stone in the building. It cannot be imperfect or fractured. It won't hold up the weight of the building. And so those that look at Jesus, they reject him. They say he is not worthy. He is weak. He is undesirable, he is foolish, he is naive, he is simple, and they reject him. When in fact, this rejected stone, this rejected Jesus is wise, and he is truth, and he is the Son of God, and he is profound, and what he is saying is in fact possible. And in the same way that the religious leaders did not naturally choose Jesus, neither will we. The world today, when Jesus is preached to the world, Paul talked about this as the world hearing the message of the gospel is foolishness. They say that's the, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That makes no sense and they reject it. And so how is it that we come to salvation? Because we will be the same way. We will reject what is said about Jesus. We will set aside this cornerstone because sinful humanity will not naturally see the beauty of Christ In our sin and rebellion, we cannot, I'm sorry, we will reject Jesus, the necessary cornerstone. But what happens here is important because it's the same thing that happens now. The rejection of Jesus does not misalign or cause the purposes of God to derail. What would happen, what would have happened here if these religious leaders at this time, they reject Jesus and they cast him out and all the purposes of God and salvation are derailed and fall to pieces? But this is not what happens here. The rejection of Jesus does not unseat his saving purposes. It does not shatter his electing purposes towards his people. It does not dampen his love for his lost sheep in going out and seeking the saving of those that do not know him. We, we have to keep in mind these hard encounters with Jesus and how much these people hate him and how much they scheme against him and how much they continually reject him And then what does Jesus call out from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The mercy and the love of Christ for sinners is overflowing and never ending and incomprehensible to us. There's not a single one of us that could ever have that attitude in and of ourselves. We would hate the people that had done these things to us. But the endless love of Christ is astonishing because he is the cornerstone Though rejected, Jesus will remain the foundation of the church. And so, John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, has something so interesting to say. I just want to read it to you. On what does the authority of the word of God depend? According to them, but on the opinion of men, so that no more power is left to God than what the church is pleased to allow him. For otherwise, does the Spirit instruct us by this passage, namely, that as soon as the majesty of God appear, the whole world ought to be silent. And so what he points out here is, is these people think that God ought to only have as much authority as they give him. And if we give the Son authority, the Son has authority. If we give God authority, then he has authority, but that's not what's happening here. If that was the case, who would actually be the authority? We would be the authority. The governing rulers of this world would be the authority, but the authority of Jesus is in and of Himself. And if all the world were to reject Jesus, He would remain upon His throne, and He would remain in authority. And this is important, vitally important for us to see, especially in a time where the authority of Jesus is being excuse me is being uh, tested and worked against on almost every side. It should cause us not to lose heart what we see here. Jesus suffers no loss when rejected by the wicked and by the obstinate. They are, in fact, as we'll see here, broken as they as they rage against Jesus. And so we're going to put that on hold and come back to it in a moment. He who is rejected by the world as weak and as foolish and as inadequate has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the load bearing stone of a building, the all important stone that supports the weight of the entire structure. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the long awaited Messiah, and He is the rock upon which each of us must stand. And collectively, as the church, that we all stand upon Him together. And there are so many passages in the Bible that speak about this, but I want to look specifically at Matthew chapter 7 this morning that speaks to the positive aspect of what it is that we should build our lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. He's been preaching to them about all kinds of things, and at the end of it, he says, "'You must build your life upon me.'" I am the rock. So, Matthew seven twenty four. 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock." And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It's the difference between a life built upon the shifting and transient things of this world and a life built upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ our Lord. A life that is built by faith upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, though rejected by man, is worthy, is able to support all of the struggles and the difficulties of your life. There is no pressure, no strain, no hardship that will come upon you that as you lean into Christ and hope in His promises and upon His word, that it will not fail. Jesus Christ will not fail as the foundation of your life. Amen. Absolutely. A life built upon the word of God will stand the test of struggle. A life resting upon the cornerstone of Jesus will not fall to pieces. There are many other analogies of God as a rock. Uh, One of them that is so interesting is uh, Jesus as a a hiding place, a rock cleft for us. There's an old hymn about this, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. I'm going to read some of the lines of it because I love it. Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood, thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. These from sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Absolutely. This is the idea of of entering into that rock, a guardianship that the Lord God is around us as a fortress to guard those who love his name, and we will in fact be guarded until we enter into his kingdom. And so I ask you the question, if I could look directly at each one of you this morning and ask you, what is your life built upon? What do you hope in? What what are you standing upon? Because every one of you here, whether you know it or not, base your life on something. There is something that you know, if it was pulled out from your life, you would just despair completely. is, Is it your career? If you lost your career, you would just go into a tailspin? Is it if your wealth was taken away and you were reduced to poverty, that you would curse God? Is your life built upon another person? that if that person were to die, that you would lose all hope and without which you would fall into despair. But I tell you that the Bible says that all these things are like vapors. They're like grass that grows up and then is cut down and does not last forever. Only Jesus is the unfailing cornerstone who will not fail in this life. And by grace through faith, the narrow gate of salvation is open to each and every one of us this morning. And I call upon you that if you don't know Christ, and what I'm saying to you is foreign, but your heart longs for these things, to have a firm place to set your foot, to have your sins forgiven, to know in Christ that you are secure, that you would believe in Jesus Christ this morning, and that you would find salvation in his name. This is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost, and he was doing it at this point in our passage. Come up. The world rejects Jesus, but it is as if there are stairs on the side of this rock to rise up and, and stand on top, to, to camp out on the, the rock of Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus and that what he said was true, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that there is peace through God in the forgiveness of sins, and I call you to believe in his name this morning. Well, the passage does not stop here, and this is important. It's very important to hear what has just been said. And if you don't know Christ, this is what you need to hear this morning. But why does the passage not stop today? Many would have us stop the passage here and not read verse 18. Because verse 18 is is powerfully strong. Those that would stop the sermon right here would say that Jesus is a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. That I choose Jesus, but if you choose something else, that's okay and that will also work out for your good. This is called polytheism or pluralism. We're very, we live in a very pluralistic society where I have truth and you have a truth and each one of us can have different truths and we say these things here in this church but down the street they say something radically different and that's okay too. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that in him being the cornerstone that something else will happen to those that reject this salvation that is extended to them by grace. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It says that you will stand upon the cornerstone of Jesus, or you will be destroyed by that same stone. And this is a powerful thing to think about. It's powerful language used here broken to pieces or crushed, that the way the King James transla- translates that crush word is to be ground to powder. And that is a sobering thought. The judgment of Christ Jesus is certain, and it will grind, and it will grind to powder. James Edwards, a commentator on this passage, writes this, the Son of God, like a cornerstone, is either received as the foundation stone of the edifice or it falls upon those who reject it with crushing force. The son is either the savior or the judge of Israel and of all humanity. Jesus comes presenting himself with all grace and kindness and humility and love and joy and patience and gentleness and hope. But do not lie to yourself that God is without wrath. We live in a day and age that wants a God like that. We live in a day and age of liberal theology which is the hallmark of liberal theology is that God does not judge, that God cannot be angry, and that basically God affirms us in everything that we believe. This is not the message of the Bible. Jesus does not come affirming sinful humanity. He does not come affirming wicked people. He comes calling those people to himself that they might have life and find life and change and live through Jesus Christ. And so the question is, is Jesus calling you to belief today? Because Jesus shows them then and now amazing love. Jesus was speaking to them, but they were not listening. Their hearts were hard. And so I ask you, is God speaking to you this morning? You know if God is speaking to you this morning. You know if your heart is burning within you saying, this is true, I should believe these things. I should follow after Jesus. Are you listening? Are you willing to confess your sins? Are you willing to believe what the world has rejected? And I understand that 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 flow is powerful. The rejection of Jesus Christ seems to be all-consuming in the media of our day. But you must not do this. If not, you will destroy yourself raging against Jesus. And this is, this is an important part of this, of this verse 18. That Jesus, the cornerstone, cannot be moved. We cannot come in against him even in mass and move him. We cannot undo what God has designed. We cannot overturn the moral order that Jesus Christ has laid down. And we cannot sidestep the salvation of God. Our day and age is full of those things. The idea that we can overturn the moral order of God and do whatever we would choose to do, but we cannot. And what this passage is speaking to us is that the unbelieving world continues to rage against Jesus, but as they rage against him, they will destroy themselves in beating against this eternal rock of salvation. And you have perhaps felt this in your life, in your rebellion against the Lord and pressing against him and thinking that you will move Almighty God and you will not instead this rock will fall upon you and crush you. Our world is doing this uh, just ever more in this day and it's hard to, to go through this passage without mentioning one of these things. one of these things happened just across our northern border just a few weeks ago. Uh, you probably have heard about this but the, the both houses of the Canadian government, unanimously uh, passed a criminal statute law, which means you break the law, it's not that you get a fine, but you go to jail, that is specifically outlawing something that they call conversion therapy. They, They framed that in the worst possible light to make it seem in the worst in the worst possible way that they can they can paint it but the purpose of the law is a very broad brushed no exception law that makes it criminal for Christians to speak about Christian sexual morality anything that is taught against the LGBTQ community is a criminal statute. If you go to counsel someone, is the language of this, which means you speak to someone and say, I'm telling you to come away from this because this is sinful, that that is now a criminal statute. Whether it be a child, a parent speaking that to their child, a teacher speaking it to their student, a pastor speaking it to their congregation, or a counselor, a biblical counselor, speaking it to a person that has come to them for counseling. It is illegal. And it is a, we should not miss this because this is not happening in a vacuum. It is a group of powerful leaders using their political power to say we will make our own morality. We will remake our gender along any lines that we choose to make it, and we will fully reject the God of the Bible. And similar to what we see happening in the life of Jesus, we will use the political power that we have to drag you before a magistrate and misuse you and throw you in jail, if we have to, to silence you, which is exactly what they did with Jesus. They walked away from this and said, we are going to get rid of this man, and we're going to do everything that we can do to get rid of him, all the way up to killing him, and they think that doing that, they have accomplished what they were hoping to accomplish, but what did they actually, we'll talk about this at length coming forward, what they actually accomplished was the salvation of God, they accomplished the cross of Jesus Christ, they actually, their actions as they were seeking play directly into the will of the Lord, And what's going to happen here is that these people will rage against the cornerstone. They will beat themselves against it, and they will seek to undo the moral order of the Lord, but it will not be undone. And what will happen in the end is that they will fail, but in the midst of it, many, many will die deceived in their sins. And this is such a tragedy. This is why I am speaking to you today. And I want you to hear me calling to you as Bob has, as I am, as each person that leads in this church, calling you to the salvation of Jesus Christ, that you might see the goodness of Christ. But there will be many. There and in our country and all over the world as this deception continues to to multiply, many will live their lives in rage in the darkness against the goodness of Christ, and they will beat themselves against the rock of ages, and it will not accomplish what they seek. And so I, I need no clever closing to this passage. We see over and over what is Jesus doing as he speaks to people? He is pressing them at the end of his ministry to a point of decision. He is pressing them to, into a corner. That you, there is, you either accept me or reject me. I am either the son of God and the savior of the world and the cornerstone and foundation of the church. Or you will reject me and hate me and run into the darkness. And so this is where we should end at the end of every sermon. But it is very, very clear here. What will you do? Will you be a part of those who reject Jesus or will you be those that accept him by faith, and your life is built upon him, and it is built in joy and soundness and strength? And so I pray that today you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage. Uh, it is a it is a weighty passage, but it is filled of great truth and hope and joy, or of great sadness depending upon the most important decision that each and every one of us will make in our life, what we believe about Jesus Christ. And so I pray for each one of us this morning that we would settle in our hearts what we believe about Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that are weak in their faith, I pray that you would strengthen their faith this morning, that you would strengthen what is weak, that their hope would be firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ, and that they would rejoice in building their life upon the word of God. And that the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, which will not be moved, would be something that gives them peace that they have never had, hope that they have never had, and allows them to look forward beyond the struggles of this life to eternal life that is yet to come. I pray for your work, Lord, in this church. I pray for your work in our land, in our community, that you would bring revival, O oh Lord, that you would awaken lost hearts and blinded eyes and those that are against you, and that instead of our land being consumed by wickedness and consumed by those that hate the name of Jesus Christ, that there would be a great turning, and a turning towards Jesus, that we would see the goodness of Christ, that our land might be revived again, but may it happen one heart at a time. And so we commit ourselves to you this morning. We love you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.